1: For me, one of the best ways to understand scripture and interact with it is to is to learn history and put the two together. I just think it's kind of funny that I'm studying what's really, really old so that I can understand God better and understand the present better and, and maybe the future.
0: Welcome to First Person, where you'll meet a young woman who describes herself as a lover of the Bible, its God, its words, and its history. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and Amanda Hope Haley would join me to talk about her experience in archaeology and her book about how to trust the Bible over traditions. Stay with us now. God's Word, the Bible, is at the center of all that the Far East Broadcasting Company does to reach millions of listeners. For 75 years, FEBC has been proclaiming the gospel message through radio and internet programs. For up-to-date reports of what FEBC is doing, please visit febc.org. In addition to video accounts, you'll be able to listen to FEBC Today, the daily radio program featuring Ed Cannon, the president of FEBC. Go to febc.org. Amanda Hope Haley is an energetic young woman who loves to study God's Word. She has an advanced degree in theological studies from Harvard, which she says has greatly strengthened her faith that God's Word can be trusted. She has an interesting personal story to tell, and it begins now on First Person.
1: Um, I'm from Tennessee, the Nashville area. I was born and raised here, um, went to church all of my life. I was raised Southern Baptist. And um, actually, when I was in high school, I sort of thought maybe I was feeling a call to the ministry. Honestly, a, a lot of my especially male friends were going up in front of the church and declaring their own feelings that way. But as a as a girl in the Southern Baptist denomination, I didn't know what to do with that, so I just kind of stuffed it down and went to college. And at Rhodes College, which is Presbyterian, mm-hmm. everyone is required to take some religious courses. And through the through that, I, I fell in love with biblical archaeology, okay. and I kind of put it together. Like, well, I I'm not going to become a pastor or a preacher or anything like that, but I can I can pursue this academically and. <laughs> So that that's what I did. Um, I went to Harvard uh, after after Rhodes. I had some really great professors at Rhodes who got me into Harvard. They um, uh, they went there themselves. And um, at while I was at Harvard, I had some really great professors. And contrary to what people probably think, at that time, Harvard Divinity School was actually. Almost conservative.
0: Okay, this is the early 2000s? This
1: is, yes, the early 2000s. I graduated from there in 2005, and um, that is, at least in the parts I was in, Mm -hmm. because many of my professors were conservative Jews. And that was incredibly refreshing for me, Hmm. because when I was in undergrad, and I was first starting to uh, read the Bible academically... And I was starting to see some of the, what people say are contradictions or learning to understand that there are multiple manuscripts out there, anything that the world will throw at believers and say, you know, these errors, these are errors, it must not be inspired by God. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear those kinds of things, I was still a person of faith, but I was learning that stuff too. Well, at Harvard... These were men. They they weren't men of my faith, but they were men who believed in God. And I did most of my work in, in Old Testament, and I saw how they were living out of faith um, while still understanding the academic side of it. And over time, with I mean, a lot of work and a lot of prayer, I I eventually was able to to reconcile my my firm belief in God and my faith with Him with. Some of these academic things that the world teaches you about the Bible, and um, I think I've I've come out a stronger Christian because of it. I I definitely geek out on the Bible. <laughs> I love all honestly. I love all those little contradictions and um, you know things like that.
0: They don't throw you off.
1: They don't anymore. Uh, they definitely used to. Uh, for instance, uh, Gen- Genesis has a lot of low hanging fruit in this area, uh-huh. but just for instance, why are there two flood stories in there? And I was told for so long, well, that's evidence of multiple authors, and that means that there was no God involved. And today, I look at that and I say, well, that might be evidence of multiple authors, but that shows that God is involved. Because here, I'm 38 years old. I've spent the last oh, math. I've spent the last 13 <laughs> or 14 years um, working on books, editing, and writing. And I can say, if a human were doing that, there wouldn't be two versions in there. Somebody would have edited that out. And both are inspired. And the fact that both, to me, the fact that both were retained throughout Scripture for all of these millennia, that, I mean, that's just evidence of God right there.
0: So you accept it as true.
1: I do. Yeah. Yes. And you
0: survived that onslaught so to speak.
1: I yes, I did. I I definitely came out came out stronger for it. One thing that became important to me as I was learning as as I was in school and trying to reconcile with my faith was I don't know everything. And especially at Harvard, you're around people who if they don't know everything, they're on a quest to know everything. Mm-hmm. That's that's very important. And I think there maybe even is a little bit of a fear of the unknown. And I had to come to a place of peace where I can say, I don't know. If there's something at the Bible that I can't <laughs> that doesn't quite make sense that I can't quite reconcile, mm-hmm. it's okay for me to say I don't know. And instead of backing away from it and fearing it, I do the opposite and I like to lean in and study it even more yeah. and question God in prayer, question sources, but really spend more time with what makes me uncomfortable. And at the end of all that, I may still not know, but through that process, I get to know God a little bit better.
0: Yeah. Well, we're gonna talk a lot more about that because you've written a book called Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow. <laughs> which has got to be the most creative title I've heard well, in a book in a long time. Uh, and it gives us a hint about your personality, do yes. I think? But I want to go back to this archaeology thing, because sure. I'm fascinated by this. Okay. You've spent time in Israel. I have. Uh, I have an image of a pith helmet and, and all that. there's probably, you know... Not, no, true. Not, quite, not true. Not quite. Not quite.
1: More. Um, I, I believe mine's officially a fishing hat. Oh, actually, Okay, All right. I think technically it's a fishing hat. Okay. All
0: right. <laughs> but describe the experience. Uh, is it, was it a one time experience?
1: No, I've been several times. When I uh, when I was at Harvard, the at that time Harvard was digging at Ashkelon. The site was open for about forty years. It lies about ten kilometers north of Gaza City. And a lot was discovered there about the Philistines. In fact, most recently, in, in the closing season, there, uh, they found a cemetery. And there was enough DNA between all the bones that... People who understand that a lot better than me were able to take the bones, do DNA research, and discover that the Philistines were indeed from the area of Mycenae around the Greek islands. Okay. This is I, something I remember reading
0: some of this in the news. You? Yes, yeah. Yeah. so this it, it this, made world news. This, it did. This yeah. was my
1: site, and or not my site, but I, I, I dug there <laughs> where
0: you were. Yeah. I have
1: I have an affection for it.
0: Tell me what a day was like uh, for you on okay. on the dig. Right, that's what yes. you would call it. Yes. See how we much I dig. know. Yes. <laughs> there you
1: go. Um, um, the first time I went, i uh, was i ter- actually turned twenty three while I was there. And so I was you know pretty healthy physically, and it is very, very physically demanding. Is it? You get up about four o'clock in the morning because Israel is hot, so you want to do as much in the cool of the day as you can. Uh-huh. And uh, got up at four a m, went out to the site. We would go to an area we call the compound where all all the tools and um, equipment of various sorts are stored we'd all get those and then disperse to whichever squares we were digging in for the day and then we would dig until roughly 10:30 then we would break for second breakfast which I just thought was the most fabulous yeah, thing because right. in 2003, the Lord of the Rings movies were in theaters. <laughs> um, so we had second breakfast. It's an archaeology thing. <laughs> um, we And at Ashkelon, we would actually sit underneath these natural fig trees. Um, and it, it was absolutely beautiful, just mm. right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Mm. And we would eat, you know, eggs, lots of fresh produce, mm. just great Israeli food. Yeah, I'm and, sure you worked
0: it off because oh, there was a lot of work involved. It was, well, yes. What was the the best day you remember?
1: Oh, from that from that first year, um, I we discovered in our um, in our square something called a bowl lamp bowl deposit. So the Philistines and actually other cultures too, when they would build their homes, especially, they would put foundation deposits in and this is probably most akin to where the way we will do like foundation stones or put plaques on the sides of buildings when the cornerstone is mm-hmm. laid that sort of thing so it would be a perfectly formed bowl and inside that bowl would sit a perfectly formed usually unused lamp and then another perfectly formed bowl would be turned over on top of it so to protect the lamp and then that would be bu- that would be buried underneath the eventual cornerstone of that structure um and i got to excavate one of these things and it came out all in one piece i was going
0: how intact I mean,
1: all perfect
0: oh my goodness
1: and i couldn't believe they trusted me to do it for one thing <laughs> <laughs> um but it oh it just it it was it was wonderful Were being you able to pull something out um maybe Once I realized what it was, because they didn't actually let me in on it, everyone in the square, the people above me could tell what it was before it came out of the ground. And I was told that day, like, you know, okay, here's a brush, go check it out. And then once I realized how perfect it was, I was very nervous, especially lifting that last
0: bit out. What is it like holding something from antiquity like that? I mean, it just has has to give you a... Kind of an archaeologist rush, right? It does. Yeah. It
1: absolutely does, um, especially something that's so still perfectly formed like that. Mm. I mean, it, in, in the case of the Philistines, and I, forgive me, I believe this was Iron Age. It could have been Late Bronze Age. Um, but we're talking about something at least, say, between three and 4,000 years old that has been buried in the ground, and it hasn't seen light of day or oxygen since, I mean, the time of the patriarchs. And... That's what I. That's what I think of. Especially as I've gotten older, um, I find myself thinking about archaeology almost in terms of, okay, well, who was walking around here mm-hmm. at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it gives you chills. <laughs> just being in Israel does. The whole nation is that
0: way. There's more to talk about with Amanda Hope Haley, our guest on First Person, and it comes up in just a moment. Listening to your station is my
1: first priority when I get home. Sometimes I even listen twice,
0: first on the radio and then through the Internet. Thank you for all your hard work. The Far East Broadcasting Company receives millions of responses each year from grateful listeners. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org the Far East Broadcasting Company, until all have heard. My guest is Amanda Hope Haley. She's the author of Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow, is from Harvest House Publishers. Okay, let's get into the theme of this book that you've written. Uh, Tell me, what, what is this all about?
1: Well, the the subtitle helps because <laughs> it's a long title. Um it, the subtitle is How to Trust the Bible When Truth and Tradition Collide. Mm-hmm. And the the seed of the idea came to me many years ago when I was actually in graduate school. I uh, was sitting in a class, we were studying something called the Gospel of Mary, which is a non-canonical gospel, but it was written around the same time, has the same characters as mm-hmm. the Bible, but mm-hmm. it is it is not divinely inspired yeah, not for in lots our Bible. of reasons. Every- no, no, absolutely not. But we, we were studying it more for a historical perspective. And the teaching fellow asked the room, why do you think in this text that the other apostles don't believe what Mary is saying to them? Because in this story, supposedly Jesus has given her special special knowledge. Um, and I, I thought I knew the answer. I've been in church all of my life. I raised my hand and I said, oh, well, it was because she was a prostitute. And sitting across from me was a Harvard undergraduate student who in my memory always wore like a pink polo shirt with the back of the collar popped up. And he laughed so hard. He leaned back on the back two legs of the chair and he actually hit the wall behind him. And then he said, how did you get to graduate school mm-hmm. without knowing that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute? And aside from the imp- embarrassment factor yeah. there still
0: kind of a condescending tone oh it but... definitely
1: was yeah it definitely yeah. was um that the, the teaching fellow handled it great and he explained to me that the tradition derives from when pope gregory the great was um was the pope and he is the one who basically linked the unnamed woman of luke 7 with mary magdalene who is right. unfortunately the next name yeah. in luke 8 and um So, I mean, I was embarrassed, but on on my way home, I walked. Boston was really expensive, and my husband and I were newlyweds and very poor, so no car. I was walking home up this huge hill. I called my mom and told her what happened, and my mother was absolutely livid. And she said, No, 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 Harvard is wrong. I know that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute because when I was little I was in an Easter production and <laughs> no. your grandmother did my costume and she put I put on makeup and she put on blue eyeshadow so that no the people way. at the back of the church could see it and um so I mean it dawned on me that is three generations of God loving, Bible-believing, yeah. church-going women. So what's whom- at play here?
0: What's what's going on here? Where it it's it was a tradition. It was a tradition. It's not backed up at all by scripture.
1: Correct. Correct. A lot well, the, the there are unnamed women there. And going back historically, I assume that Pope Gregory was preparing his, his talk for the, the following, the following day. And he looked at it and he wanted that woman to have a name as a writer, I would say for brevity's sake, (laughs) for clarity, whatever, she didn't have a name. And so he just went to, went to the next, the next woman's name Mm -hmm. and took it. And at that time, the, the, the Protestant Reformation hadn't happened yet. So, if you were a Christian, you were a Catholic and you were listening to him, and everything he said was considered to be the inspired word of God. So, that's where it started was with associating Mary Magdalene with the woman who was the sinner who washed Jesus' feet. And then, just over the decades, the rumor just grew, and she eventually. Became associated with the adulterous woman, mm-hmm. all these other unnamed women, until you know eventually it snowballed into Mary Magdalene was a yep. prostitute.
0: All right, what's at play here? What does this illustrate?
1: Oh, that. Our our church um, and our culture tends to we tend to put so much faith in traditions that maybe we don't we don't backstop them we don't go back to the Bible and look and make sure that that actually is what is said there because we've all known it for so long for so many generations you see other examples we of this oh absolutely yes another another great one it's fun to talk about at Christmas is Jesus being born in a barn. Um I, I think about whenever I think of Christian Christmas, my favorite part was always setting up the manger scene, all the little plastic figures and the Spanish moss on top of it and the fake snow. I don't know. <laughs> um getting all that set up. Well when I picture the Nativity, even though the Bible talks about him being more being turned away from an inn, mm-hmm. um i I picture him out in the middle somewhere being born in a barn. And when you get into archaeology and you understand what uh, what cities looked like at that time, what houses looked like, and when you learn about uh, Jewish hospitality practices, What probably happened, uh, what more likely happened is that um, Mary and Joseph, they were going into Bethlehem for the taking of the census, and they were basically knocking on doors, maybe a friend's, maybe a family, and it is part of the Jewish tradition that you offer hospitality to anybody you can. And wherever they went, the people said, um, what, what gets translated into English is, there's no room in the inn, that same word can also mean there's no room in the second story of our house, basically. Mm-hmm. And the way houses were, people lived upstairs, they ate upstairs, they slept upstairs. In the bottom, it's where the animals stayed, that's where the cooking happened, all of that. And so really, they were invited into the home of a family. There wasn't room for them to be upstairs. And so that is where he was born. And t- to me, he was still laid in a manger. Yes. Yes.
0: What, That's clear. in Scripture.
1: It, definitely, yes, absolutely. Um, and and animals were there, and I mean, archaeologically, that would make sense as well. But what changes is what I see is a tradition really around the M- Mother Mary, because when we tell the story, I, at least I was taught that there was an angry innkeeper who yeah. looked at this unmarried, always pregnant made out woman, as the bad guy, exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that it was some sort of bias against her and that just wasn't there that only distracts yeah. from what actually is the birth narrative.
0: Yeah. Well, why are these things so important to us particularly today?
1: Because we're we're followers of God and we're here to get to know him. He wants a relationship with us and he has chosen to reveal himself through scripture. And that that's how we do it. We we interact with what is in the Bible and get to know it better. And as we understand it better, we understand Him better.
0: And it's also appropriate as we pass on the gospel message to succeeding generations yes. that we don't pass on these inaccuracies, the these yes. errors, uh, That that but it's tested against Scripture. Exactly. That's an important part of all this.
1: It absolutely is. When it, since I wrote, well, since before I wrote this book, I've always thought about um, James saying that uh, the teachers are held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means anything that I talk about, I mean, it's, it's, it's on me to go back and make sure everything is correct. And so I for hundreds of years, I guess that means priests and pastors weren't going back to actually make sure that was Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. uh, washing you know, washing his feet. Mm-hmm. It's a little thing that in in the grand scheme of of, of faith it doesn't really matter. But but it's in there and it has had a huge effect, I think, on 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 culture and on Christianity and on the way Christians even interact with one another.
0: Well, God's word is God's word. Yes. And and what He has given us, He wants us to know. And yes. what He hasn't given us, <laughs> it's not for us to know at this time. That's right. I mean, is that how you look at it?
1: Absolutely. Um that's why I like to say I'm i I'm okay with saying I don't know. But that
0: doesn't mean we shouldn't study it.
1: Exactly. We need to interact with it. I God, from the beginning, could have said, you know, okay, every year we're going to have one worldwide press conference. I'm going to come down. I'm going to tell you this. You do this. Don't do that. You're bad. You're good. You know, whatever. And then go back up and, you know, that's it. But instead, he chose to reveal himself this way with these texts that aren't completely clear to us, especially if we're encountering them through through translation. Yeah. And um, I guess that maybe he did that because in this format it forces us to interact with the text mm-hmm. and he's a god of relationship he walked in the garden with adam he wants to know us intimately and you can't have a relationship with you know, a talking head on a stage giving instructions you you have a relationship with someone you spend time learning about yeah. and yeah, yeah learning
0: so is it been your experience that this has energized your bible reading
1: oh absolutely your study of the bible yes i i have been accused of geeking out on it um <laughs> just just the little things i and every time i read the bible i'll 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 see something different and think how did i not notice that before you know just little Isn't things is that a wonderful part of it it really is yeah, yeah. it really is i i was involved in a bible translation several years ago and I must have read the Bible, I don't know, 15, 20 times in the course of doing that. And I still open it up. Well, I open it up every yeah, day. And so. I would say on a weekly basis, at least, I go, how did I not notice this before? Hebrews
0: says it's living and active it is. and sharper than a two-edged sword.
1: Absolutely, it is. And it's, it's funny to me. I enjoy history, and for me, one of the best ways to understand Scripture and interact with it is to is to learn history and put the two together. Um, but I just think it's kind of funny that I'm studying what's really, really old so that I can, you know, understand God better and understand the present better and, and maybe the future.
0: <laughs> that's Amanda Hope Haley, the author of Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow, How to Trust the Bible When Truth and Traditions Collide. We'll put a link to her book at firstpersoninterview.com. Our website is also the place to go to hear any recent first-person interview you may have missed. Each week's program is archived online at firstpersoninterview.com and is also released as a podcast on several podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. But perhaps the easiest way to listen is to download our free smartphone-tablet app, First Person Interview. Using the app, you can download interviews for convenient listening. Look for it in your app store, First Person Interview. A big thank you to the Far East Broadcasting Company for the support making First Person possible. Learn more about this exciting radio and Internet outreach to the nations at febc.org. Learn how to pray for FEBC there at the website, febc.org. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to join us next time right here for First Person.